WHUS Stores. Hello, everybody. This is Travis Poppleton. And this is Tarzan. <laughs> so this is the first podcast ever where we ca- or we are keeping WHUS stores on the top. Word. Word. Now, for those of you listening on the radio, happy Sunday. Uh, this I have is, no idea what that... We're keeping what? We're going to keep Velda saying WHUS stores. Oh, Velda said WHUS stores? Velda led in with WHUS stores, which is the first time we were able to get her back on the show. So uh, if you're driving on a Sunday, uh, doing some gardening, getting some coffee, welcome to uh, the Connecticut show. And if you're listening on the podcast, wherever you are, uh, that was Bon Bon Vivant that let us in. And that was Velda Abney, who read the radio uh, station. Yeah. Alf- Velda Alfred Abney. Velda Alfred Abney. Vala. Yeah, so welcome, Terrence. Welcome back to uh, season four. Welcome also, Travis Poppleton. Thank you. Looking cool with your purple shirt and your orange and gray hat. I'm, I'm wearing those things, that's and true. well-manicured nails and beard. What you getting ready for a player? Um, the, the first part was true. I am wearing what you said. My nails are definitely not well manicured and I'm... Um, I was trying to make you feel better. They do look bad. But I was trying to make you feel good. So this is um, so this is the beginning of season four for the Connecticut show. We've done three seasons now. Uh, the truth is, I don't know what episode this is, but I know that we've got a really good plan for you going in. But before we get into any of the the actual content, what the show is about, um, Terrence, how have you been? It's been it's been a while since we've done a show. Yes, I'm doing well. That's it. That's all you got. Yeah. One, two, three, and to the four. Uh-huh. Here we go with season four of the show. Ready to hit some lyrics, so back on up, because we know we're about to rip sit up. Give us the microphones first so we can bust light bubbles on this podcast, TNT, so y'all know y'all in trouble. Ain't nothing but a kinetic show thing. Man, you from you from Cali, man. Do you not know? What I'm playing off of right now. Um, I know that that was so good. Travis. That to interrupt would have been, I don't know, pick a pick a term, blasphemous. Terrence uh, <laughs> is leaving. That, uh, that was, that was, you could have kept going for the whole show. I could have listened to that for an hour. And you were pointing at me and there was just no way I was interrupting. It was too good. Tra- <laughs> Travis is from LA. I am. Oh my goodness, I just don't know what that Yeah, I I am I'm from uh Southern California. G thing. Little little bit north of LA. And um Ooh. Claremont? No, Ventura. And actually you were just in Long Beach. We've had this discussion before. So Long Beach is like that little peninsula that goes out. Long Beach is on the south side, we're on the north side. I I was in Long Beach, I thought you that. Yeah, no, it was uh you did a conference there recently. Yes. And uh, yeah, we still talked. no reason for you not to know that song. Oh, that was it. That wasn't you just uh, from the hip. No. Oh goodness. That was G thing, Snoop Dogg. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm sorry. I was not really a Snoop fan. Yes, you are. I mean, who isn't a Snoop fan? I just I didn't I didn't uh, I I would say I didn't memorize his lyrics. How about that? Yeah. yeah. That's fair. I understand. You're kind of a good a good person. Not into all that oh, misogynistic you're, machismo. You're killing sexist me. Sexist rap. So <laughs> actually, shame on me. Shame on me. No. So here's the thing. So I've changed. I was young. Terrence will often just go into uh, a rhyme, and I'm happy to let you go and listen. I didn't realize that that's not what was happening. So I apologize for not knowing the lyrics to that to that song. Yeah, and I was trying to get you to jump in. We got to work on this. The time and then the. If this relationship is going to continue to blossom. Yeah. Seriously. Um, it's because uh, he did like a point. He would get to an area and, and he didn't stop, by the way. Like if you go back and listen, you know, he, he had a good groove going on, but he would point as if I were to take over. But no, like, I was not pointing like that, by the way. Just if, if just in case the cameras are showing, you're doing my point wrong. 
So it was like kind of a downward point with his index finger, and the index no, finger was, was like crooked. No. It was like a crookedy index <laughs> finger point. Was well, not the finest point, but I knew what he was getting at. I knew where he was going with the point. Then why didn't you jump in and say? Because I didn't. I I thought you were, and I didn't know if you were like asking me to come up with the next rhyme. And I I had nothing when you were on bubbles. I was like, I don't know where he's going to go with that. So <laughs> when that landed, I was super impressed. Woo! Yeah. Thank you, thank you. So that's not where you've been, though. Where have you actually been? What, what's been I going on? I've been here during the break. I was at home. After the break, I was at home and at work. My lovely significant other and better, better half went to Costa Rica to do some community service and did some hard work there. Kudos to her and shout out to uh, I forgot I forgot the name of the school she went to but shout out to that school that she went to and helped actually build she was building an addition to the building not not by herself but with 13 other students so shout out to those students who she did that with and I was here solo for two weeks with the babies well, not the babies the kids got them to school on time most days well four four days they got to school on time but you know, they ate nine of those days. So it was a good time. I ate every day, but they ate nine of those days at, at the very least. When you had said that Velda was in Costa Rica, I thought she was just vacationing. So uh, when you came back and, and mentioned that there was kind of a difference in the temperature when she came back, it was quite lovely and warm there. And then she came here and it was probably like 20 when she came back. It was 25 when she landed and got back here. She was thrilled. But I don't know that I was necessarily sympathetic because I thought that she was, you know, off vacationing and escaping the weather and, and coming back. But the, nah. she was she was doing some hard work. She was doing real work. Yeah. She was doing real work. I will have to I can't front on her on that. And this is something and this is something that happens through Yukon. It's a um, kind of a, a, a service abroad uh, kind yeah. of thing. Community outreach trips. And it's not always out of the country. No, they have different trips. They have trips in I mean, they've done D.C., they've done um, a reservation or still maybe do a reservation in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. Uh, they've had them in New York. They have them in Hartford, Hartford, Connecticut. So just different, different type of community service projects for students to do. Like um, they do them in West Virginia also. That was my first one. Still kind of I'm kind of jealous about that. So, well, actually, I want to talk about that really quickly before we jump into topics. So this is a community outreach. Do you know where you're going when it starts? So like, do they say, hey, we're doing one in West Virginia and you sign up knowing? Or is it like, hey, we're doing one, everyone sign up and then surprise, you're just going down the street to Hartford. Like, how does that work? I feel like you're trying to set me up because you're trying to say, well, Terrence, didn't you know you were going to West Virginia before? And then you signed up anyway. If you're going there, I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to tear up all the equipment. In this. <laughs> no, because you know that I grew up, uh, I grew up a Latter-day Saint, a Mormon kid, right? And so like what happens, and I'm no longer, if you're new to the show, that's, that's I'm not a member of that faith anymore, but growing up I was. And then at 19 years old, you go out as a Mormon to serve for the church, Right. Right. But you don't know where that is. You just say, I'm willing to serve. And then like, okay, for the next two years, you're going to, and then they spin a wheel, you know, and that's, that's figuratively, you know, there's a, there's something that happens. I don't know how they make the decision, but they do. And then you just find out, you just get a letter and that letter could say, uh, Boise, Idaho, or that letter could say, uh, Germany or France or, you know, anywhere in the world. Right. Right. And for some people, it's really cool because they go and they learn a language uh, like my nephew learned Russian. Mm -hmm. And then I thought that was cool. I was a little bit jealous of that. You know, people go learn Cantonese and all, you know, languages of the world. And they come back and they speak it fluently because it's just like two years of total immersion. Yeah. It, yes. So that's why I'm asking you. You're acting like I'm setting you up for some you are, you for are. some home run. But like in my mind. It would be, what I'm really asking is, yes, Costa Rica, I'd sign up for that. I'm not sure I would sign up for Hartford. Right. Now, well, in general, you do know the trips. You go 
and they have different trips. I, I think in my case, I was volunteering to just help with the trip and to be the staff member that assisted with the trip. And to be honest, West Virginia was the one they needed help with, surprisingly. Um, so that's the one I went to. But they have, I mean, they they have quite a bit. And I'm probably not naming all of the places they go to, but they do good work. And it's a great, it's a great, uh, again, community service and way to way to practice again, again kind of, you said immersion earlier, kind of have an immersive experience and experience of, again, just by learning and being in a different community and again, working with the, working with the people there. So I don't get, I don't have all the details of the projects that they do, obviously, because I'm messing this up right now. They're probably not doing it justice, but really good program. Our community outreach office does here at UConn. And you went to students. West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, similar work. Was there a lot of manual labor? Were you building a uh, school or something? We were helping clean up a mountain, and we were also helping. It was set, we we had like three different projects we were doing there. But that first one sounded big. Yeah, <laughs> you clean, just clean, clean up a mountain. A mountain it's not a more small. or less. That is that's what it was. <laughs> clean up a mountain and learning about sustainability and the environmental, the environmental, I guess disasters that uh coal and coal mining caused in West Virginia or can cause, however you want to say it. Um we also were helping we I think we also helping build a house there also. Hmm. And there was something else we were doing. I remember doing some duck work under a house and we were under a house doing some duck work. And then uh just different again, several different projects. My last question on this is what is happening in Hartford because like Costa Rica, I understand you're building a school. Um, West Virginia has a lot of rural areas. I understand cleaning up a mountain. I don't know what was going on in Hartford, but again, these trips have different. I mean, I think some of these trips are going to, can be like, you know, advocating for LGBTQIA. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Some of these trips are, again, there's just so many different trips. I don't even know what they do in each area. And it could be different every time, but I really don't know. That's, all the, all, um, it all, I guess it all depends. I have to look at the list to actually get it right. That's a good lead in, actually. I think we're going to, our, our entire theme for this season is not going to be um, trips, <laughs> community service. But, but also, yeah, we want to start talking about some of the things that are happening. Um, that are making the world better in New England. Yeah, you might come here and go on vacation, but also we're doing things to change the world in our in our own way, right? Like every state I feel like has their their outreach and their humanitarian efforts. And we want to start because, uh, wh- why don't you lead us in on this? Oh, we were talking about MLK Day. So, oh, happy belated MLK Day. Everybody should have celebrated in some type of way. All of you listening. And not listening, should have celebrated MLK Day. And if you don't know what MLK Day is, it is Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Is that, so it is Reverend before Doctor, is that correct? Yes. And then also, um, when you just say MLK Day, that's that's good? That's okay? You can't say MLK Day. Yeah. Because that's catchy. Uh, you can say Martin Luther King Jr. Day also. I, I tend to say the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think someone's fighting. Yeah, they could be. They don't, I wonder. <laughs> we're getting some I guess feedback. We, should be get, I, I, we, we shouldn't be laughing, but someone out of studio is very upset. With we're, we're getting feedback as we talk about the peace bearing Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> we're hearing some people yell in the, back, in, in the background like they don't agree with us. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's probably what we're But we're, we're going to choose peace. We're going to choose peace. The thought, the thought that someone is outside studio, just irate that this is the theme we chose for the show, uh, it just kind of cracked me up. So I think this is a, uh, you know, a great way to lead us into season four. And so we wanted to talk about a few of the ways that Connecticut. So we're going to start with Connecticut, and then we might reach out to New England. But Connecticut's home to us today, right? Right. Um, as far as uh, where we are located, we we wake up every day in the state of Connecticut. And so we wanted to talk about some of the the ways that Connecticut has made any sort of difference um, as far as, you know, associated with, with MLK Day, right? Mm-hmm. And Terrence, 
sent me a few things to read, um, which I was unaware of, with the exception of one, which is the most obvious. When you come to Connecticut, there are only so many things that people say, oh, you got to go see that. And one of one of them is Harriet Beecher, Harriet Beecher Stowe's house, yes. house, right? Which so is right I was next aware to Mark Twain's, yeah. But but Mark Twain, we're not really going to talk about. Not talking about Mark Twain, but I'm just saying <laughs> people will see that if they yeah they were neighbors. They were neighbors, which is kind of cool, and, right. and we'll get to that. Um, but how do you want to how do you want to kick this off? I think we start talking about it because we're talking about MLK Day, and for those of you who don't know, there's a connection with Martin Luther King Jr. In Connecticut, in his youth, as he came up here to pick tobacco to earn money for to earn money for his family in school, um, and then we, I start talking about some other figures from Connecticut, like of course Harriet Beecher Stowe. Harriet Beecher Stowe um, is most famous for writing Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is said to have been one of the turning points in the Civil War and moving that cause towards being. I will say for lack of better words, being to help in slavery. Um, I think there's a lot more to it, but I think, again, the book was was is known to be that landmark for that. And again, that was our own Harriet Beecher Stowe from Litchfield, Connecticut. It, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say there, there's the there's the famous quote, right? There's the famous quote from President Lincoln. And I don't know if this is true. And I'm, I'm wondering if you know if it's true. Um, where he met her, or she met him, however you want to frame that. Mm-hmm. And he says, as the as the legend goes, so you are the little lady who started this war. Is right. that a true? Is that a true story, or is that legend? Is that you know George Washington and a cherry tree story? I think it is. Again, I don't think I don't I don't think as as far as it being true that she started the war. No. The war was started because southern states felt like they were losing power because they felt like they were losing the political power of being able to move out west and expand and expand slavery and expand their foothold in the country. Again, they wanted to be our man, me and my friends just talking about this. They wanted to be like an aristocracy that, you know, again, the South was like very rich, very popular, and they were popular from before. They, you know, they had they had rice that they were exporting, and then it became cotton. But you know, it's a driving source for the southern the southern colonies, and they wanted to keep that. You know, the Missouri Compromise. You see that like when they talk about states' rights, again, which they talk about the Civil War being based on. The Civil War was based on states' rights, but a large part of those rights was the right to enslave people and use slave labor. So. That was one of the biggest causes for secession. And that's what the war is about. Harriet Beecher Stowe family, who, again, the family who traditionally um, anti-slavery. She her book was popular because it highlighted a story and it highlighted the brutality of of chattel slavery. She um, there's a. First of all, I, I do. I, we we kind of glanced over Mark Twain, but as the stories go, Mark Twain and she were not just neighbors; they were actually pretty good friends. And the story is that they were both very passionate about uh, social and civil rights back in the day, and they shared jokes. And so, as far as like the Connecticut, if you go down to the mansions and do the tour and listen to the stories, they really kind of sell um, both Samuel Clemens and. Harriet Beecher Stowe as 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 good friends who were united in a in a uh, social justice cause. Have you been there? I have been to the Mark Twain house. I've been to both, and I've had the same experience where I showed up and it was closed. So I've walked around the perimeter and like picked up like the pamphlets and read the pamphlets, but I've not actually done the tour yet. And one of the times I've actually been to both of them a couple times. Um, once was my very first time here in Connecticut when we were seeing if we wanted to live here. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, what what to do, right? right? <laughs> and that came up. Uh, and when I went, it was like after hours. And then the second time I tried was actually during quarantine and it was just closed. And I, I think they opened for like two or three hours a week, but it was um, very difficult to, to find the right time to go. Mm-hmm. Have you been through it? 
I have not yet. I have not. Okay. I got I got to put that on my list before I before I uh, move out of here. So what I didn't know um, was one of the things that she really one of one of the things that she said she really sympathized with is when she lost a child, um, and then would read articles about slavery. She just felt like this connection, like there was a certain amount of privilege she had in the way that she had lost her child and she grieved and this was a major event in her life and she was not even seeing like that basic human right being offered to um to slaves in america and so she had a really heavy heart and part of the reason she wrote the book and part of the spirit of what she was putting in the book was that was that her version of of, of sympathy and empathy in that way mm-hmm. yeah uh I think there are some and I was just I was just reading about what you said. I think it is to follow up on that with the Lincoln statement not that is not a verified statement of what she said. Right. So it's it's yeah. out there in the world. It's it's a story we repeat, but it hasn't been verified. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's gotta be half that. of history, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of the best, because we're about to get to a, a, a quote, but like, um, goodness, I always forget his name. The guy next door, the spy. Oh, um, Nathan Hale. Nathan Hale. Um, there's really no real record of him him saying, um, you know, I regret but I have but one life to give for this country. That was said later by a British officer who was there, but it's really not. I mean, that's as close as we get to substantiating that really... Mm-hmm. kind of cool soundbite that we have of, of right. his last words but why not why not I, I'm just going to go with it and, and say that that conversation happened Harriet Beecher Stowe started the Civil War no uh, I don't believe with? that but I'm going to no I'm going <laughs> to say that I, I'm going to go ahead and believe that that Abraham Lincoln made a quip okay about it when he met her but apparently it was said that she said or one of the uh one of the children said that they had a really, or she had a really funny interview with the president. Right. And I don't know what it was. Well, if she's cracking jokes with Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, who was like at that time, probably one of the wittiest people in the world If those mm-hmm. two were having tea and just, you know, cracking jokes back and forth. She was probably a pretty funny individual. Yeah, I don't see Abraham Lincoln as a funny person though. Yeah. Yeah. He was, <laughs> <laughs> um, I read no, I read a team of rivals, and and from the sound of that, he was like always sharing stories, and often the stories were like had really good punchlines, and and people thought of him as quite funny. Yeah. It, he was a melancholy man. People didn't. I I I just feel like people didn't like him. President Lincoln in general. People, I'm pretty sure people didn't like President Lincoln at the time. At the time, no. At the time, no. They shot him. You know, that that is um, that's yeah. one way to yeah. to see if people dislike him in a in right. a very big way. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that necessarily speaks to the population. However, um, he was not loved when he was elected. He was very loved um, when when the assassination happened. It was very sad. Yeah, that, that's usually how it happens. We all for Harriet though, um, are we? A little bit, a little bit. My bad. I, I, I think I jumped into Abraham Lincoln. But I, but getting getting back on track, though, thinking about this, I think, again, and these are the kind of, this is how me and Travis have a conversation. So some of y'all who listen to the show know that. So we're not, we're not that much different when we're talking outside of the studio either. We, we jump topic to topic. But I think we were also just talking that after, because I brought up, it's a, I did bring up, um, it is amazing how this small state has such big figures in the abolitionist movement, like Harriet Beecher Stowe. Then we went to like another one with the most, with the coolest name ever, John Brown. <laughs> so, no. and the connection because again, it's just so many people with connections <laughs> in Connecticut specifically, and I think that's not it's not by accident, right? I mean, you think about just again, well, a lot of people who were enslaved were traveling north. Uh, New England had outlawed slavery somewhat, I forgot how many years, but I dare say early 1800s versus um, versus the South. And um, 
Again, this is where you would come up north and towards Canada. And so you had a lot of families here who were not in support of um, slavery. So I, I think n some of it, not by mistake, but just some of those land. Again, when you think again, Uncle Tom's Cabin and what that book has meant even now, uh, it's, I think it's amazing. And then, you know, I think Harriet Beecher Stowe's legacy is is huge. And that's like Litchfield, Connecticut, you know, and it's like, what, you know, what, what brought that, you know, and again, it's a lot of it's probably family and everything, but again, you never think about some of these figures. And like, again, I know you say this a lot, the history here in new England and the, and like these huge figures that have helped shape the narrative of at least what we think, we you know, whether some of it, whether it's true or not. Right. But it has helped shape this country and what we think and again even like we look at the figures like uncle tom like uncle tom if you I don't know if you know this or not there's not many black people who want to be called uncle tom you know it is not a flattering term even though uncle tom and the person who she followed and interviewed i think because again i think she got some horrific hate for this for the book and people were saying she was born out of proportion. And I think, but actually when you look at it, and there's been documentaries on this and writings on this, she really did her research and she spoke, she actually spoke to these enslaved people um, or, and had documents about them. So the actual, the actual person that Uncle Tom was about wasn't really in the sense of what we're thinking about as Uncle Tom, that type of person who was just, who was just, um, worshiping master and doing everything at master's bidding and you know a complete turncoat who didn't care about you know his people but again that can you think of that that heart that book that basis came from came from here i went on a um i did not know that by the way i went on a um like 20 years ago probably now uh, um kind of like an early american i wanted to read uh, the actual books that shaped America. And I remember when I read Uncle Tom's Cabin, I, I'm not even sure I really understood outside of commentary on the Civil War where that book was going. And I had no idea who Uncle Tom was. So like that was a huge revelation reading it. But I had no idea going into it what that term meant or why people used it. Uh, one of the things that that people noted uh, about her reasons for writing it, speaking of the North and kind of the apathy here, was she was saying, um, people in the North do not understand what's going on. So as you were talking about um, where people were saying that she blew it out of proportion, that that was exactly kind of the sentiment here. And that's what she was trying to draw attention to. She was trying to say, Northerners, wake up. It's so much worse than you think it is. Right. Yeah. Right. So. And I think that was the thing, the catalyst behind when they were looking at it, like, oh, this is a tr atrocity. It's kind of like when, and again, I know everybody doesn't agree with this, and this is like a, this may be a jump, and this may be a jump, but it reminds me of um, Rodney King. Because I remember before that, and people still made excuses for it, but if you could, if, if you would say to some people, specifically, well, I'm from some white people, like, yo, the police are bugging. They harass. They they be harassing us a lot. By us, I mean like black people. Like, and they're like, oh yeah, they harass us. Like, you know, no, no. I feel like they harass. They harass us a little more. They ask us more questions when they get pulled over. And you say like, yo, I got a friend who had a gun in his face from the police just for doing nothing. And, ah, ah, ah. and then all of a sudden, and Dave Chappelle makes this joke. It's like, it's like it. You seen the police beating Rodney King like that, and people like, oh yo, the police do this all the time. They're, they're, it's like they're beating they're beating these black people like hotcakes but it it took that it took seeing that to be like was this a little egregious yes he was speeding yes this but it's like you know people start you know people more people question like was this egregious now there are a ton of people who felt like no Rodney King criminal deserved that beat down whatever but I think those are the images it takes though to see like hey you know, and again, you know, this is kind of you think about it. Some of this is a repeat, like Uncle Tom's Cabin is kind of, you know, 
as the earlier version of some of these videos are telling people like, hey, wake up, y'all. This this stuff is happening. Like I remember, I think you, I think we've talked about it here on the show. You and I have definitely talked about it. My dad was a police officer in LA. Oh, sorry to hear that. And no, um, both, he was there for both the Watts riots and the King riots. Oh, no, you didn't tell me that. Really? Uh, yeah. So. I'm trying to add up your dad's age now. He's a pretty old guy. Yeah. No, I mean, not the, I mean, they're not even being funny. I just thought would never, I would have thought. So he was still an officer when you were coming up too, right? Or no? Yeah. Wow, he was on the force for a long time, then. So on the force for a while, he was a young young cop during the the Watts riots, and then um, he was, I, if I remember right, you know, he was probably in his last ten years. And I remember watching. Okay, because here's here's another thing. I said I grew up in Ventura County. He, and like, it, and by the way, you said that kind of like I guess you did say it, of his life as a police officer. Okay. Yeah, no, he's he's still uh, right. Yeah. He's, he's still around. Just to, I just want to clear it up for people who didn't hear that. And I'm like, want to run that back? So yes, pretty sure he doesn't listen to the show. But yes, he's he's still around. Um, he might. He I remember. You. So yes, I I grew up in um, Ventura County, but where I grew up specifically, is Simi Valley, where they did the trials, mm-hmm. and so it was news every day. And I and I suspect it was national news in some way, but it was like, it absolutely was. It was local news, national news. Every news was um, this. And in fact, I remember when they released the tape, people were worried that people would come into Simi Valley um, to, you know, to start riots here. Right. And I say here, but like in, in Simi Valley and that did not happen. But like there was just a lot of tension for everyone as we were watching the video and trying to come to terms with what we were seeing. And me being raised by a police officer, this was the first break in the idea that police officers are always right, mm-hmm. right? Because like your dad's a good guy. And you know, I believe my dad's a generally good guy. Right, absolutely. Um, but you you have a worldview and then all of a sudden there's this videotape on the news and there's no way to look at that and say, yeah, I think this is okay. Right. I think, I think the force being used here is proportionate to the crime, whatever crime was committed. Like there's, there's no crime for that. There's no crime for that. So I remember like having to deal with that first break of credibility mm-hmm. of like, I've believed everything one way until this moment. And now because of this break, all credibility for what I've been taught is suspect, right? Right. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, going all the way back to uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, I think that's what she was trying to do with, with that book as well. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. You, know, you got to give, when it, when you have one perspective your whole life, then somebody's telling you another perspective and the perspective, again, you, you know, you said the book is well written, it's documented, like, and then... Well, but the other thing is it's entertaining. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's when you pick it up, it's not a book that you need to put down. It's not like right. homework. It's actually a really good read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, you get this perspective. And again, it's, I mean, that's what, that's what art, that's the beautiful thing about art also. Right. But that's what it should be doing. It should be introducing, introducing the truth, even though, uh, you know, you could argue we don't have enough of that. Well, I guess we have, more than that than ever. Maybe we have more lies than ever also uh, on, on one hand. But, you know, again, going back, and that's and that's New England, this small part of New England. Um, again, the, the little lady who apparently started the Civil War, even though the book was written in, you know, 1852 yeah. or published but, in 1852, like nine years before the Civil War started. And, and, and this is just personal um, for me. But like what I'm saying, like this was a book that was easy to read. Um, and, and not easy to read because of the content, but just like it's a book that you read and yeah, you're, you're gonna you're gonna turn the page because it's 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 well written. It's not like Cicero when you're trying to read or exactly my point. It was written in a language that people would read, right? Like it wasn't trying to be this high level essay trying to bring academics to an understanding. Like it was written in in a voice of the people, and it's still it, it is a, you know a very accessible book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just a general thing that happens in academia and 
anytime you're talking to people about scholarly pursuits, like when these heavy topics come up, everyone thinks, oh, well, I've got to research this and get some essay written and that needs to be published in a journal, right? right? No, that's not going to change anything, right? It's the, it's the, it's the blockbuster movie that everyone's going to see. It's the, uh, it's the, the stuff that people look down on. That is often the medium for change because that's the voice of the people. That's the conversation of the people. It's why we still listen to Mozart because he wrote music for the peasants. And we don't know anything about Salieri who was writing for the emperor, right? Nobody knows Salieri's music, but everyone knows Mozart's music. If you're- You still listen to Mozart? Yeah, everyone does. No. That's why I didn't know, why I didn't know your Snoop Dogg lyrics. I'm so busy listening to Mozart, <laughs> seemed apparent. Anyway. All right, so let's let's talk about John Brown. So Terrence, Terrence sends me a, a message and says, oh, you know, another person we should talk about is John, John Brown. John Brown. And uh, I was like, well, that's an uninteresting name. You know, like <laughs> if you went to the phone book had, in the 80s. You've heard of the Harpatria Raid before, though, right? You had heard of it before? I had never heard of John Brown. I had never amazing. heard of this raid. So you you tell us, because you were the you definitely know this way better than I do. No, like John Brown was a figure, and John Brown was best known for the the Harpatria Raid in Virginia, which is now West Virginia, actually. And John Brown was where you were. a staunch abolitionist. <laughs> <laughs> Not with the Harpers Ferry, but yeah, staunch abolitionists who more or less believe that, you know, the way we're going to free black people is more or less we're going to get down and we're going to fight back and not just fight back. We're going to have to take we're going to have to forcefully take freedom and because it's not going to be given to black people. And by the way, John Brown is white. But just a staunch abolitionist, and had made a plan. Had um, had had did some stuff in Kansas. Um, actually, was and again the connection to Connecticut is that he was born in Torrington, Connecticut, and his parents were also, again, not pro or anti anti slavery, and they moved out to New Connecticut in that area, and he bounced around. But during his travels, he was always again, you know, anti slavery, and again he. I think he's known for the most famous for the Harper's Ferry, Harper's, the raid on Harper's Ferry. So the name of that was familiar to me, but I, I had zero context, like of all the, all the famous battles and everything that you hear about historically, that just sounded like one of them. So help, uh, you know, bring some context here, context. What, what happened in that raid? What happened in the Harper's Ferry raid? Yeah. Yeah. So John Brown, and I'll, I'll get the date right. Seven years after Uncle Tom's Cabin was published in 1859, um, he led a raid on the Federal Arsenal in Harpers Ferry, Virginia. And again, his whole plan, as I was saying before, is, you know, we have to we have to fight. We have to fight vigilantly for the, for the free black people. Again, he's a staunch abolitionist like. Now, I always think about when people talk about being down for a cause. And it's like, I cannot imagine being down because I always have you have to imagine like he knows you, you know, this isn't going to end well. But what he did in this plan was to arm arm slaves with weapons and they were going to seize this arsenal for Harper's Ferry and take it over. And that was the plan. And once they take it over, they were going to fight. And free more slaves and kind of go town. Like I think the plan was to go town to town and do this and like free, free all these enslaved people um, on these plantations. Um, but again, it wasn't successful. He was caught. Um, it says actually, I, I didn't know this part. He was caught by Marines led by Robert E. Lee, um, and. He was caught, and this is Travis's for a part. They actually didn't kill him right away. They actually did take him to trial, which is surprising, because um, you know if y'all know anything about lynching and you know during this time, people didn't always get a real trial. Not saying that he did, but um, and he was hanged. But again, I think his his legacy is just of that of like being one of the. But you know, I think he he has one of those legacies also. Like this is one of those things that actually 
slave owners feared. Like they, you know, the slave owners feared like these uprisings, you know, because this is their property. This is their, you know, somewhat of their lifeblood, but also it's just that power. Like, you know, again, and power doesn't like that pushback like that. And this wasn't a small pushback. This was, you know, you're doing this violence against us and we're going to inflict this violence upon you. Um, and John Brown was, again, was a deeply religious man. I think the big thing was he, he felt like this was God's calling. He felt like God is saying that we should that we should not treat people this way. We shouldn't be treating black people this way. And we and my calling is to help free black people. I mean, and, and free to enslave. Um, if y'all ever Google it, there's some great pictures, pictures of them painted. But I think it's amazing. Like, you know, he was actually called a terror. He's actually called a terrorist by many people. It depends, you know, who, who wrote the history. He's called a terrorist. They say he was a fanatic, that he um, had mental illness, uh, just all these. He's called all these names um, by people who, of course, are, you know, didn't believe in what he was doing. Or, or, you know, I think a lot of times people say, oh, these are overblown. Like, you shouldn't look at this John Brown as a hero because in some eyes, he's also a hero to, hero to some people because he was against, you know, this peculiar system or this peculiar institution, as they call it in the South. And, you know, I think it's, he has an interesting story as far as his travels and probably his, his, his connection to Connecticut, being born in Torrington. Shout out to Torrington. I wonder if they like him in Torrington. They might be like, ooh, we don't talk about John. Don't talk about John. Like, like we don't talk about, what's the name? We don't talk about Bruno. Yeah. We but, don't talk about JB here. Yeah. But, um, and then but they're he, like, they're like, which one? Because like, I know sixteen John Browns. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Get off my man, John Brown's name. <laughs> but the other connection I think is interesting, and we don't, we haven't talked about this. Is like, his family actually went out to New Connecticut to make that, you know, looking out, you know, because again, one time Connecticut was, they were talking, it was an expansion. They wanted to go, you know, west, and so there's a part of Ohio in that area. New York and Pennsylvania kind of got in the way of this, messed up Connecticut a little bit, but part of Ohio was called the Connecticut, the Western Connecticut Reserve. And so that was part of his travels and why he was out kind of that way when you talk about him being in Kansas and things because his family moved around a lot and they that was one of those first moves was to New Connecticut. So he, you know, he was a um, someone who took, to your point, some people would say extreme measures. And what I was thinking about, um, another thing that's happening right now, Terrence, in Park City, Utah, this might seem like a non sequitur, but I promise it's it's going to come back, uh, is the Sundance Film Festival. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it happens every year there in uh, Park City, parts of Salt Lake. And years ago, I was a film critic, and I would go into, I was a film critic out of Salt Lake City, and every year I'd go to the Sundance Film Festival. And the very first year that I was there, um, my editor called me and he was like, hey, there's a small documentary called We Are the Giant. And I, I'd like you to cover it. And I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, and you're We gonna, are the giant. We are the giant. And he's like, uh, and by the way, uh, you're going to meet a, Mar uh, a woman by the name of Miriam uh, Alkawaja, and you're going to interview her. And I was like, cool. That sounds great. I know nothing about this at all. And so then uh, her people reach out to me and they're like, you watch the documentary before um, you talk to her. And I was like, yeah, cool. That's all right. And then I watch it and it's all about Arab Spring, right? It's about all of mm -hmm. the, the uprisings. And she is in Bahrain. And while she is there, she and her sister and her father are leading a peaceful protest against the government, nonviolent. And her father is arrested, sent to some God knows where prison. I think to this day, he's still in prison. Mm -hmm. uh, sister was arrested and put in prison. She was taken from a, a young child. And Miriam herself has been exiled from the country. She's not welcome there. All because of this peaceful protesting um, as part of Arab Spring. And so it was one of the most intimidating interviews of my life sitting down with someone who 
was so dedicated to, to a peaceful revolution that was happening. Like it was such a um, big thing happening in the world. And I was talking to her and I was asking her like, why nonviolence? You know, why did you choose this, um, this way to protest? Because in Ar during the whole Arab Spring happening, there were a lot of um, violent uprisings. There were a lot of revolutionists. And she said, oh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was the first time that he felt not just part of American history. Right. It was the first time for me that I realized he didn't just influence people here. And I had just like maybe the month before I went to Sundance, I had just finished his um, autobiography. And so I was already like, this guy's amazing. And, and so when she said that, I was close to tears and I was like, I felt really proud to be American mm -hmm. in that moment. And, and there's very few times, like when you're talking to people outside of the country where being American really comes across as a cool thing, but definitely not inspirational like that, right? Right. And so when she said that, it was like the first moment where I realized he, he didn't just affect the United States. This was a man who affected the entire world and, and was still affecting how people were trying to change the world in their places of oppression and it, it was it was um it was a very moving and powerful moment for me in my life mm -hmm. so the reason i bring that up is we were just talking about the the violent protest and we're coming all the way back to martin luther king jr right. and and his non-violent right uh, approach to, to had, changing and i was like for the listeners i think um bleeding kansas was john brown's other one that was another um, uprising, the kind of that he was a leader of. But again, I think about the religious fervor that they talk about with John Brown, and again, fanatical terrorists. And think about what again we're saying, like he was arming, he was arming men. He had his sons involved in this in this crusade to end slavery. And then you think about Martin Luther King, and you attack you attach some of those same things. People attach some of those same things to him at the time. When we think about Martin Luther King as such a the figure he is now, he's Martin Luther King Jr., this, as you said, this great American. He led civil rights. He led these peaceful protests and marches. He, um, you know, nonviolence. You know, they shy him. You know, they we killed him. You know, and I think that's that stands out. Like, that's how fervent his message was. That's how radical that message was of, you know, just of giving people their civil rights. You know, I think he was, Martin Luther King was shot in Memphis with talking about, you know, the rights of sanitation workers there. Those sanitation workers were not just black, like white and black. I think, I mean, that powerful message of like how we, how we all are victims of this system how we all are these victims of the system of racism and the system of, um, in a sense, capitalism. And, you know, again, how we all deserve these human rights and dignity. And I think his message uniting people through that was just very dangerous. It's very, da very dangerous. And I think it's a very intentional message. And I think it's not different than that fervent um, radicalism that a John Brown had that non-violence approach. The non-violence approach is almost harder. People always say, well, it's easy to let it. It's like, it's not easy to sit back and plan a peaceful protest where you know people are gonna spit, kick, yell, arrest, kill you. And it's not just your temperament, right? Cause like when you think about mob mentality, it is a very intense thing. So we're not just talking about like keeping yourself in check mm -hmm. as a leader. He had to have a message to keep hundreds, thousands of people in to, to not fight back when someone does Man. spit in your face. Right. And I think that's the connection to Connecticut as far as like part of his. I mean, again, maybe maybe Connecticut is playing this up a little bit. Shout out to you, Connecticut, I guess, for being smart enough to do that. But I think it talks about him coming up in the 40s and 40, if you have it up, 45 and 47, maybe to work at the Sealsbury, work in a tobacco farm in Sealsbury. 
and there's a way for him to raise money, come up north and, and you know, excuse me, and earn money. And I think some of the things in his letters he was saying, he never imagined himself being in a place to where he could eat. He ate at one of the finest restaurants, you know, that he did for eating that and sitting side by side with not just his brothers and sisters who are black, but white people not having to go through the degradation of segregation of being told you have to come in through the back or being told you have to drink from this water fountain of not being given, you know, equal or close to equal access. And with all the problems, again, that we know Connecticut has racism also. So I want to be clear. We're not paint. I'm not going to paint it up as, as that, but I just think it's that realism of, him being here and getting that vision. And I think that's in some of his letters. And I think that's, it's a, it is, a, I think, an important piece of, you know, y'all, we have all these experiences that make us us, that provide us these backgrounds for who we're going to be. And I think that that is a Connecticut, you know, that connection to New England, important backdrop to his experience. Um, and getting framing that vision of like, this is what, this is what we can have a world of and even more if, if by, by doing this fight. And again, um, I think, I think again, I think the connections are incredible. You know, when we talk about, again, these passions and these pushes for social justice and the connections here in New England. Again, and I think Travis said this earlier in the, in the podcast or on the radio show podcast, whatever you're listening to, that it, each area probably has its own pioneer its own, you know, history around somebody who's done great things. But, um, you know, we happen to be talking about, again, Connecticut's part in that right now and the people here, people from here. And, you know, I'm sure we're leaving some out, but, you know, you know, I get A plus for some of the names that we you <laughs> can't go wrong with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, Terrence, in, in previous episodes, you've been a little bit, critical, and I think rightfully so, of Connecticut and New England in general, but oftentimes Connecticut and then and Boston gets pulled into this, I think rightfully so as well. Um, you've been critical of the civil rights and some of the um, things that have happened within our, our more recent history. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about some of the things that Connecticut maybe did right. Um, and so what is... What is your takeaway from this for uh, kind of an ebb and flow and, and maybe, you know, a, a world of some people trying to do the right thing and some people actively trying to do the wrong thing as neighbors, right? We're all here in Connecticut. What's your takeaway? My takeaway for... Uh, what, what would you say about Connecticut? Like if, if you were to describe Connecticut overall as a, as a, a force for good or evil or, um, you know helping helping the world become a more peaceful place where does it stand i i think as far as what we're talking about i, I think it is a place that's being a somewhat of a breeding ground and influence on some of our most influential figures ever in the world and these that have that have some similar views and passion to stop injustices in their own right you know we talk about john brown we talk about harry beecher stowe we talked about of course MLK. And I think that there's a line there that, again, these are places, you know, you know, these this this small state in New England had a place in being a part of the experiences that shape, you know, these figures and undoubtedly, again, had a huge handprint on, you know, how we look at again, how we look at the world today. Again, you just mentioned it with the. um with the documentary you're working on like Martin Luther King you know again it goes ego further like Martin Luther King you know one of his mentors um, Benjamin Elijah Mays you know again these those small nuggets and Benjamin Elijah Mays is from 96 South Carolina even though that's not New England you just start talking about like how do these small things add up and I think it and I think in this case you know in this case you, you were looking at like how all these small experiences build us and make us who we are. And I think, you know, I think it's kind of for anything. Connecticut, I think, has its, still has, has its good and its bad, um, you know, and the, I guess we say the yin and the yang. So 
I think it, it's it's a I think it stands special and I think it's right that they highlight, you know, Martin Luther King's experience here and what he wrote here and feeling bitter about going back to segregation after spending time in Connecticut. Um, and we also have to acknowledge, you know, some of the other history that has, you know, that's not so nice. You know, we talk about James Mars, another figure here who wrote a book about being about his time as a slave in Connecticut and had a career as a writer and a speaker after that. Like that's a part of that history that feeds into and navigates into like these handprints of like what I would say, you know, of the how the foundation of the country. So, you know, you know, for me it's just looking at all of it, trying to acknowledge it, be more erudite about, you know, where we come from and trying to make and trying to make things better from there. And hopefully reading the right history, because you can also Google a lot of stuff and pop up and it'll be some people telling you that you know people like me deserve to be killed and stabbed around election time because I don't deserve the right to vote so again yes you know hopefully we get to the right part of history on that and I think we're talking about the right parts here right so I think uh we're at the top of the hour we're gonna we're gonna leave with that so boom bon vivant thank you for uh leading us in we're gonna I've never heard this song Terrence, but they, they have a song called Saints and Sinners. The title seems appropriate for the, the conversation we had today. Um, anything, any last words before we, uh, before we say goodbye? A lot of pressure. I hope this, you never heard this song before? No, no, no. It's going to be perfect. Let's kick it off. Let's kick it it's off. It's going to be so good. All right. For Travis Poppleton. And Terrence, sorry about my high-pitched voice, Abney. <laughs> this is the Connecticut Show. Love and peace, peace and love. Of me.